Crystal. Hello, Kat. Did you know that I was actually, on a side note, doing the math? And I think around this time last year is when we recorded my first episode. I think so, yeah. Isn't it? So happy anniversary! (laughs) We've known each other for a year but never met in person. Yay! I want to see how many years we can keep that up. Like, let's, you know how some people go, we need to meet. Let's try to never meet in person. I never want to fucking see you in person. <laughs> like if I happen to just run into you and I see you, I'm going to turn the other way because we do not meet in person. I'll text you and say hi, but like yeah, hours exactly. later, like leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> you know, it's funny now that just on a side note also, yeah. um, I got a message today from our best friend Meredith. Oh, yay! And she is. Um, essentially dead that you didn't know what MO meant. Oh my gosh. Do you know how many texts I got about that today from people? So my, uh, it was my neighbor, Justin across the street and he texted me. It was like, I think it was like five 30 in the morning or six in the morning. And he goes, M O question mark. And I know that when he heard that, he is the type of guy that probably rolls his eyes at me, like, visually and in his head, probably every yeah. couple of seconds. But he was like, really? Like, and so I just wrote back, motto, duh. Like, <laughs> and then my friend Heather, her, she was like, I am dying. Like, <laughs> I think... I think I and I left the basically the full exchange in there just because <laughs> I thought that was so funny. I still was like, it just made sense in my head that it was motto, like, 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 and I forgot how it went down, but you're like modus operandi or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, what? and you're like, wait, and I kept talking. You were like, wait, what? What's that? <laughs> Oh my god. Oh, good times. Good times. No. <laughs> what are we learning today? Well, you know what? I have another love story for you. Because oh they're always love stories. I can't help it. I'm drawn to them. But this you is are, a story. Eh? <laughs> this is really good because I just want you to know. Okay. Whenever I'm looking at cases to do, like I want you to know that it was either this love story or a different story about a daughter who decapitated her mother and then took out her brains and the police found it in the kitchen sink. So since it is the holiday season, I felt like I needed to stick to more love stories. We're keeping it light. Okay. You're welcome. So we know know that other story is coming. (laughs) That's coming in 2022. So get ready. 2022 (laughs) is going to be a wild year. Just to start you. God damn. Okay. (laughs) But right now I do have a love story of sorts. And this is the story about Stacey Castor. So let's just get right into it. Let's unpack this, this baggage for you, if you will. (laughs) So here we go. Stacy was born in 1967, and she obviously, her last name wasn't Castor, that's her married name, but she was born as Stacy Daniels in 1967 in Clay, New York. Um, I really couldn't find a lot about Stacy's upbringing, which to me was a little unfortunate, only because uh, she ends up being very... Uh, damaged, if you will. (laughs) I don't know how she became this way, but I also kind of think, and I don't know how you feel about this or if we've talked about it before, but I do really feel in cases like this where we don't have like a clear kind of picture of a childhood, or maybe we do, and by all accounts, it was normal. I really do think that some people are wired for this type of behavior. Yeah, it's the whole nature-nurture yeah, thing. Yeah, and that, we have talked about it before. Yeah, but, we yeah. have a couple of times, and I think, I don't know, it is really hard because, I mean, actually, I mean, this came up in my episode last week that 
Caroline was talking about her childhood and her growing up, but she was diagnosed with a really severe mental disorder. So is her mental disorder coloring her past or did her past create the mental disorder? It's really, really hard when you're speaking with a biased source. It is. And then I also think, too, that people can be wired like this, but it's never like it's never met its tipping point, you know, and some people can suppress it and never really get there. And some people just, I think their outside world kind of like brings it out in them, obviously. So I don't know. And that, again, what we've talked about before is what has always fascinated me about true crime is that line, right? I believe that we all walk that line and what is it that makes certain people yes. cross that line? Yes. And other people who would probably have every reason in the world to cross that line, like whether never it be their do. upbringing or trauma or whatnot, and they never do. So I think that's what has always just kind of like fascinated me about the whole thing. Um, I know people think it's, you know, decapitation, but it's not. So that'll be soon. Anyways, Stacy, let's go back to Stacy. So by all accounts, just a very normal upbringing and life there in New York. Um, when she was around 22 years or when she was around 17, sorry, she meets um, a man by the name of Michael Wallace and they had an instant bond. Everyone who knew the couple They said that they were just, by looking at the two together and the way they interacted together, they were just deeply in love. And it was like a mutual, mutual thing, right? It wasn't like she was just deeply in love with him and he was kind of standoffish. Everyone could tell they were in love. Mm -hmm. Um, Stacy would describe him later as just larger than life. Um, and, and this was a quote directly from her that he was the life of the party. If you needed something that Mike had, he would give it to you. So he was just a really nice guy. Uh, they got married in 1990 and they would end up having two daughters together, Ashley and Bree. Ashley was the oldest. Bree was the youngest. Now, after they got married, kind of that deep love kind of wore off a little bit. Married life for um, Michael and Stacy was not perfect at all. Um, Michael, unfortunately, struggled with drugs and alcohol. And this was something that I guess he had struggled with kind of all throughout his adult, you know, young adult life. And their work schedules were very opposite because uh one would work nights, one would work days. So they kind of were like ships passing in the night, as they say, right? Yeah, uh, they which is only, hard. It is very hard. And that has to be super hard on a marriage, especially when you have children too, right? Yeah. Because that's... You don't get that whole family bonding no. time. You get one or the other, but never everyone. Exactly. Uh, Stacy was working as a day in the day shift as an ambulance dispatcher, and he worked nights as a mechanic. And they weren't making a ton of money. As a matter of fact, the family was living paycheck to paycheck. Um, but they were doing fine, right? Doing that living paycheck to paycheck. Since they never were able to see each other or uh, ever able to spend time together as a complete family, Stacy would say that it's almost like they each clung to a child, right? Sort of claiming them as their favorite. Oh, um, that's yeah, weird. which is which is weird. And Stacy kind of explained it as that he did it first. So Michael was always very close with daughter Bree, who was the youngest. And so then she claimed that she made up for that by becoming especially close with her oldest daughter, Ashley. Right. So it's almost like they each had a buddy in the family. um, And Brie was a daddy's girl and Ashley was a mama's girl. Um, This just ended up creating more distance and more tension. And it was kind of just dividing the family in half. By 1999, Stacy had already reported to plenty of family and friends that she was kind of contemplating divorce, like that she just knew this wasn't working out with Michael and that maybe divorce was coming soon. Oddly enough, that same winter of 99, Michael actually started to get really sick. 
at first they had no idea why he sort of kind of went from this really healthy man to suddenly just very ill without any rhyme or reason. He started becoming increasingly, increasingly, that is not a word. Thank you for making it up though. He started becoming increasingly unsteady. Like he was suddenly like super dizzy. This sounds Uh, like poison. Oh, thanks detective. Let me finish. Okay. How do you know it's not like, I don't know, a yeast infection. Okay. Please listen to all the symptoms. What kind of yeast infections have you had? Guys get yeast infections, don't they? I don't think they're as common, but I'm really concerned about like your experience with yeast infections, that that's what you said. So maybe we need to talk about getting you to a doctor a little more often. Listen, my yeast infections are none of your concern. We are talking about a love story right now. And that's why I know. And Michael. Oh, my God. He also, in addition to his yeast infection, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, He started coughing a lot, and he also uh, began swelling. Like, he would have swollen ankles and kind of a swollen face a little bit. Okay, but like me too. (laughs) Oh, maybe you have a yeast infection, Crystal. Anyways, so he finally went to the doctor and the doctor was like, uh, maybe you have like a middle ear infection. Um, so they gave okay. him, they, which sounds right, right? The dizziness, I the mean, unsteady. I mean, not for the swelling, but like for the dizziness and the yeah. coughing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they tr- were started to treat him for that, but he was still sick on and off through the holidays. Like something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Then on January 11th, 2000, Um, Michael was found unresponsive on the sofa at home. He was found by his oldest daughter, Ashley, who was 11 years old at the time. Yeah. And she was home alone with him. She found him. She couldn't wake him up. She called 911. And unfortunately later he was pronounced dead at the hospital. Oh, man. That poor little girl. Oh, yeah. And I mean, she blamed herself Uh, for his death for the longest time because she said that during the day uh, he had seemed really sick to her like more than usual because remember he was he was he started to feel ill already um, but that he looked a little bit a little more than usual and that she didn't think anything of it like she wished she would have like called someone right to like yeah. mention hey my dad looks really sick or someone come help my dad but she didn't but also so, she's 11 she's That's 11 a lot to put on yourself yeah at 11. and for the longest time she just carried that with her um now michael's sister was immediately very suspicious and confused about his death because again michael was a super healthy guy prior to this yes he had problems with alcohol and drugs but Overall, in you know, in general, he was a pretty healthy guy. Um, and, and she this was, whole thing was very sudden. It's not it like he had super it sudden building over years. It was all of a sudden. I'm dizzy. I'm coughing. And yeah, Ex- yeah, correct. And her main thing was, what seemingly healthy man lays on the couch and then is dead within hours, right? right. Uh, so she requested an autopsy. Actually, she begged. Uh, Stacy, her sister-in-law, please, we should get an autopsy. We should get an autopsy. And Stacy flat out refused. Now, the reason Stacy refused is because the doctors had told her after Michael had passed away that they believed even without an autopsy or really anything just from an outside examination that he probably had a heart attack. And that was all the explanation that Stacy needed, right? She's like, well, of no, course. we don't need an autopsy. Doctors think it was a heart attack. I'm going to go ahead and believe them. And soon after his death, Stacy was able to collect a $55,000 life insurance policy. It's always that life insurance policy. But this is not that much. No. $55,000. I mean, for me... 
I don't think any alarm bells would start ringing yet in my head had I not been a true crime podcaster because obviously this, you know, screams Stacy Shady. We yeah. got we got some Stacey shady, shady woman here. Yes. So the family is getting over that. It is a really sad time. But remember, Stacy was talking about divorce prior to Michael getting sick. So the fact that she moves on in 2001 really wasn't a shocker or a surprise to anyone, right? It's right. almost like, you know, that relationship obviously was coming to an end. Even Michael had told, you know, people that like it just wasn't going well. So in 2001, Stacy meets a man named David Castor and she was introduced to him by her boss. Um, David was the owner of an air conditioning installation and repair company, and he had already been married before they were divorced, and he had a grown son. So his son didn't live with them. He had already moved out. Uh, According to Stacy, David was very uh, conscientious and very work-driven, and he was very much into the outdoors. Stacy said she loved him because he was a big support to her and strength and he represented security to her. So she said that she fell in love with him pretty quickly, especially after, you know, all the trauma surrounding Michael and losing her husband and also having two young girls that she still has to raise and support. Right. Yeah. I will say that those reasons are, sound a little strange to me. Like if that was, if she had said that and uh, and he's a good father and he takes care of me, like I would be like, okay, as a whole picture, he sounds like a great guy. But all you're talking about is the the support and the stability and the strength he can give you. Is sound- this is sounding a little like love comes softly to me. But yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, I hope she worked that into the vows. Because they eventually did marry in 2003. <laughs> Do you promise to support me, strengthen me, and provide Don't me judge with my target shopping cart? <laughs> so after they married, she became um, the office manager for his air conditioning company, which is totally... Oh, that's cute. Yeah, it's cute. She became the office manager. They worked together. Um, Stacy's daughters, though... Uh, Ashley and Bree, they weren't very happy about this marriage. And this is according to Stacy, by the way. Stacy claimed that David was hard on them and expected them to do everything without question. Whereas Michael, their biological father, was kind of, you know, softer with them, kind of treated them, you know, ba- basically like princesses, right? I was going to say, it sounds like daddy's little princesses. E- exactly. And- yeah. Um, Then, so marriage was going fine. They got married in 2003 by, everyone said that they seemed very happy. David was happy. Stacy seemed happy. No one but Stacy ever talked about the girls not liking, you know, their stepfather. I think also when you look at it from the girl's point of view, it is hard to be that age and then to have your mom remarry a couple Mm -hmm. years after your dad, who it seems like was a wonderful father, right? Like very loving um, and everything to like feel like your mom's trying to replace your dad. In a way. Right. So I totally get if if there was any animosity between the girls and David, I think it came from a totally natural and normal place. Yeah. Right. That eventually I think they would have grown out of. Yeah. Because I mean, it's a normal phase that happens with yeah. either a divorce or the death of a parent, especially the death of a parent. Totally. Um. So like it doesn't sound too strange to me. No, not at all. On Monday, August 22nd, 2005, so this is two years after David and Stacy were married, at 2 p.m., Stacy frantically calls the sheriff's office. Um, she calls them. She's like, my husband didn't show up to work today. 
and she was just frantic. So the police immediately, you know, go over to the house, meet Stacy there, and they're like, okay, so, so tell us what's happening. And she said, you know, we had a fight on Sunday night. So this was the night before we mm-hmm. had a fight last night. He got really upset. He locked himself in our bedroom and I didn't see him at all this morning. And I came to work and I thought he would eventually show up, but he hasn't shown up. He wouldn't open the door. He wasn't picking up the cell phone. And she said the last time she had personally talked to him was at 5 a.m., the morning before, right? So that morning. So they had the fight Sunday night. He locked himself in his room. I guess she last talked to him at 5 a.m. Um, and I we don't know what she talked to him about, but then at, she thought he was eventually going to open the door. He didn't open the door. She ended up going to work. She thought he was going to show up. He never showed up. So she told them um, that when he locked himself in his room, he had uh, taken a bottle of Southern Comfort with him. Um, she claimed, um, and she like made sure to mention this to the police officers over and over, that David was probably depressed. Like she felt he had been depressed ever since he lost his father, which was probably, uh, or it happened like during that year. So a couple months before this incident. Um, but she brought that up a lot. She's like, well, he, he's also really depressed because he just lost his father. And then the next police officer would come over and she's like, you know, he just lost his father. He's probably really depressed. And the police are just trying to like figure out what's going on, trying to figure out how to get to David. Now, she said that after 5 a.m. when she tried to get him to open the door again that and he wouldn't, that she put her ear to the door and she could hear him sleeping. So I assume that means she heard she she thought she heard him snoring or whatever. Okay. So police decide, you know what, we're just he's not answering the door. We're just gonna knock the bedroom door down. They had Stacy's permission. And when they knocked down the door, they unfortunately found David dead. And just from the first look, it appeared to be a suicide. Um, oh, I wonder why she was telling everyone oh, he was I wonder. Mm-hmm. So a sergeant at the scene reported that Stacy screamed, he's not dead. He's not dead when they found his body. Uh, upon further examination, they found two glasses on the nightstand next to his bed. Um, upon which David was laying uh, face down. And one of the glasses contained a bright green liquid in it. And the other glass was empty with the Southern Comfort bottle next to it. And obviously, surprise, surprise, what do you think that bright green liquid was identified as later? Uh, Was antifreeze? Yep. Antifreeze. I was like, I'm thinking through, I'm like, one of the car liquids. <laughs> I always, ever since I was a little girl, I'm like, that has to be Gatorade. Like, what else could it be? I remember one time, I don't know who it was. It was either a neighbor or my uncle working on their car in the garage. And I saw the bottle of the bright, it was bright green. Mm-hmm. Um, or it was windshield wiper fluid also reminds me of Gatorade too, just like, you know, the color. And I remember asking whoever it was, it was either my uncle or a neighbor, is that like Gatorade? Because my mom never let us have like oh, anything no. other than water and milk, right? And they're like, and I remember like the reaction no 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 don't ever touch that you know like that's not Gatorade that's like you know bad stuff but I always remember fine you're mean too (laughs) yeah so I always remember thinking like god just tell me I can't have Gatorade (laughs) like you don't have to hide it from me (laughs) but (laughs) so um underneath the bed the reason they knew it was antifreeze anti or anti anti okay antifreeze antifreeze mo motto Modus operandi. Dublin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's add it to the list of words Kat can't say or that she mispronounces. Um, so underneath they found the empty bottle of antifreeze with the cap off. Now, a search of the kitchen also revealed a turkey baster that smelled of alcohol, but that also had a little bit of a trace of antifreeze in it too. So 
police, after they found that, they were immediately suspicious. Oh, yeah. Of Stacy. Especially when later Stacy's fingerprints were found on the glass that contained the antifreeze. Not not David's DNA at all on the oh, glass. Oh, only hers. Only hers. Well, her fingerprints. Well, I was going to say, like, if she does the dishes and she puts them away, it's her house, her fingerprint. But if his are nowhere on them, yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Also, David's DNA was found on the tip of the baster found in the kitchen trash. Oh, it was in the trash. Yes. You didn't mention that. I Maybe I should have mentioned that. The turkey baster was in the trash that they found that had a trace of David's DNA on the tip. And then inside was a trace of antifreeze and it smelled of alcohol. Man. So, okay. His, his ex-wife, David's ex-wife, uh, the one that he had the child with, and other friends and other family members of his claimed that David would never, ever be the type to kill himself. Like, they were beyond shocked when the report came out where they're like, it was an apparent suicide, right? The coroner reported that David had a lethal dose of antifreeze in his system. Now, I don't know if you know this, but dying by antifreeze is very, it's a very painful death. And what happens is when you, when it is ingested in the body, it leads to the formation of crystals in the organs, like in hours, right? So it's a slow death. Your organs start to shut down, right? And it is just super painful. So what investigators were thinking is they were thinking that Stacy waited until David was drunk and then force fed David the antifreeze through the turkey baster. Yeah. That, that is what they were thinking, right? Yeah. Like she sucked it up and like stuck it uh-huh. in his throat and it, because he's too drunk to fight her and you just stick it in the back and it's it's already down his throat before he can even like cough it up. Yes. Yeah. So the detective on the case was Detective Spinelli with the Ono. Let me. Okay. Let me pronounce this. Onagata County. Detective Spinelli, New York. Okay. (laughs) I sound like law and order. Onagata County. Detective Spinelli, New York. Okay. So he believed like right from the start that Stacy was involved. This was going to be very hard to prove, though. Um, so what they started to do was they ordered wiretapping on Stacy's house after the incident. And they were just trying to listen for unusual phone conversations that she had with anybody. They also set up surveillance on the house and the grave sites of both of her husband's. Now, I say both of her husbands because Stacy buried David right next to who? I don't remember his name. Michael, Michael. her first husband. That is weird. Isn't that nuts? Like That is weird. <laughs> like, and you will see a picture on our Instagram, um, like the headstones are right next to each other. There's Michael Wallace and then there is David Castor right next to each other. Where's she supposed to be buried? Uh, probably There's no in room between for her them. anymore. There's no room for her. Yeah. Uh, so this was upon her request that they be buried next to each other, that David be buried next to Michael. How, I don't know how the his side of the family didn't have a say in it, but I, I guess they didn't. Um, And the reason for this, the reason for this request is because she said she loved them both so much that they should be together so she could visit them together often. That was so that in the afterlife they can compare notes. I I don't know. Yeah. It's like those two are going to talk, Stacey. Like, I'm sure I'm sure Michael like looks over at David and is like, oh, you too. Yeah. (laughs) Now. Now, remember, that was her reasoning. Like, that way, when I go to the gravesite, I can visit both of them. Two birds, one stone. Sounds good to me. Exactly. Actually, though, Stacy never, ever visited the gravesite. Ever. 
The only time she was there is when she buried Michael there. And her second visit there is when she buried David there. And that was it. Stacy sounds dumb. Yeah, and she is. So Detective Spinelli actually would work on building a case against Stacy for two years. Okay, this is how long it took to actually get something decent on her. And they got something pretty decent next. Oh, good. Okay. So uh, through the investigation, they found out that David, once upon his death, left everything in his will to Stacy and her daughters. What they found odd was they left, he let that in his will, he left nothing for his, to his own son. To his own son, which everybody found extremely weird. So that was kind of stake number one in yeah. Stacy's coffin. Also, like, hi, my name is everybody. That's really fucking weird. Exactly. So then Spinelli, after he found that out, he reached out to investigators in the Cayuga County about Michael Wallace's death. And finding similarities in that death was another couple of nails in Stacy's coffin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so prior to his death, Stacy had claimed that Michael Wallace, her, her first husband, had many medical issues. When Spinelli looked into Michael's medical records, he discovered that the worst medical issue that Michael Wallace, her first husband, had was a hernia. And that's it. Like, other than that, he never had any major hospitalizations. He never had any major medical issues. Soon, police suspected that Wallace most likely died in the hands of Stacy as well. So uh-huh. they started looking deeper into that. Too many similarities in their death. So in 2007, investigators had Michael Wallace, Stacy's first husband's body, exhumed. An autopsy was finally completed on Michael Wallace's body, and the medical examiner examiner said that Wallace's body was loaded with crystals. So inside, and remember, we talked about when you are poisoned with antifreeze, your internal organs, like there's a bunch of crystal formations in there. That just sounds horribly painful. Doesn't it? And now you know why he had, when he was getting so sick uh, during the winter, she obviously was slowly poisoning him with antifreeze, right? Because he was sick all winter long. A toxicology screening confirmed that that it was antifreeze poisoning as well, which came no surprise to Spinelli. So right after the body was exhumed, Stacy conveniently made her first visit to the gravesite of her dead husband's. Now, again, this would have been the third time Stacy had been there. When Michael Wallace was buried was the first time. When David Castor was buried was the second time. And as soon as she heard of her first husband's body being exhumed, she decided she was going to pay a visit to the gravesite. And I don't know if that was to show her... You know, like, oh, I'm just a grieving widow, you know, uh, but that's when she went a third time. Putting on a show because maybe she thinks that people are catching on and she uh-huh. needs to play the part. Yeah. And that's kind of where Spinelli was going with that. He's like, I think she was beginning to panic. Right. And she's like, I need to do something. Well, something she did do uh, because of her panic. So in September... She is brought in uh, for questioning with Spinelli. And at one point, and this is after Michael's body is exhumed. This is after they found the crystal formations in his body as well. He, at one point in the interview, he asks, and I quote, do you remember which glass it was that you poured the cranberry juice in? Because her story all along was, well, yeah, my, my fingerprints are on that glass because I poured him a glass of, you know, cranberry juice. Um, and she said, well, I poured the anti-free, I, I mean the cranberry juice. So she totally slipped Wow! in the interview. Spinelli, that's not even a small slip. That uh, is a big fat that's slip. That's a huge slip. So she immediately like 
stopped herself. Spinelli was probably wide-eyed, right? Yeah. And she stumbled a little bit. And then suddenly she's like, I'm done. The interview is over. And then she just started like rambling on about Spinelli trying to frame her and all of this stuff. Man, he doesn't even need to try and frame you. You are digging your own hole uh-huh, right here. Uh-huh. And wait till you hear how far she did dig that hole. So on September 12th, Ashley Wallace, the eldest daughter of Stacy and Michael, she was attending her first day of college. Okay. On her first day, two investigators came to tell her about their findings of the antifreeze poisoning in her father, Michael. Okay. Mm -hmm. After they visited her and was telling her all of this, she was completely shaken. And so she decided to call her mom because her and her mom, even after Michael's death and even, you know, with everything that was going on with David um, and his death, she still remained super close with her mom. She loved her mom a lot. So she called her mom because she was clearly shaken and she kind of wanted to talk it through with her mom, right? Um, the tape conversation recorded Stacy and Ashley talking because remember they were recording their phone conversations right. and Stacy was basically badgering Ashley and asking her, okay, tell me what they said to you word for word. Tell me exactly what they said to you. And Ashley, that's not like, weird. Exactly. And Ashley, who's super upset is just like, okay. And she's trying to tell her mom, right? Because she's thinking at this point, she's helping her mom, like, and her mom is trying to help her. Then before the conversation was over, Stacy suggests to Ashley, you know what, sweetie, why don't you just come over? We've both had a really hard day. Come over and I'll make you a couple of drinks. No, okay? don't do it. Uh, Ashley did it, though, because that's her mom. She trusts her mom, right? I don't trust her mom. So Ashley did go over that night. And she did say that the next day when she woke up, she did feel like she had a bit more of a hangover than usual. Now, Ashley is 20 at this point. Okay, she's not yet 21. She's actually going to turn 21 the next day. So she said when she woke up that morning, she did feel like she had a heavier hangover than usual, but she kind of attributed that to kind of like the emotional day she had and then uh-huh. drinking and all that stuff, which makes sense, right? Okay. Um, so then that day, her mom invited her over again. She said, hey, why don't you come over again tonight? I know it's your birthday, obviously, because I'm your mom. I don't know why I would say that. But it's your 21st birthday. Let me come over or let I want you to come over. Let me make you a couple more drinks. So Ashley, just being kind of emotional, kind of fragile, was like, yeah, mom, you know, I'll come over. So she goes over and she recalls that her mom uh, made her a drink, but she said it tasted really, really bad. And Mm -hmm. so she, after her first sip, she was like, no, thanks, mom. I don't want to drink this. This tastes, and I quote, like nasty, right? But her mom kept pressuring her to drink it. She's like, no, just drink it. I just made it a little stronger because it's your 21st birthday. She even told her, as a matter of fact, here, here's a straw. Just push the straw to the back of your throat so that it's easier for you to ingest so that you don't taste it. No, thank you. Uh, Unfortunately, Ashley did not say no thank you. Ashley pushed the straw to the back of her throat and drank as much of the drink as she could, kind of to please her mom. Okay? Now, soon after that, Ashley started feeling very sick and very lethargic. Uh Uh-huh. And so she went to lay down in her old bedroom, which she still had at her mom's house, even though she was um, now living at college. 17 hours later... When she still hadn't woken up, her sister Bree goes into her room to check on her and finds her comatose in bed. Oh, that's so sad. She yells for her mom and her mom comes in and Bree recalls her mom saying, no, she seems fine to me. Like, she, no, she seems fine. And really? Bree's like, no, we need to call 911 right now. Uh-huh. So Stacy. Reluctantly agrees to call 911. And as soon as the dispatchers answer, she tells them right away, 
Hey, I think I need someone to come over. My daughter just turned 21. She's been drinking way too much and she took quite a few pills. This is like the first thing she says. She's not frantic, by the way. She, nothing. She's just like, I need someone to come over. So Brie leaves her sister's side for a couple of seconds. I'm not sure when she, where she went, but then Brie comes back and this is before the ambulance was able to get there. Mm-hmm. Brie comes back and suddenly she notices a note next to Ashley's, you know, body laying there in bed. Right. Oh. And she picks up the note and it is a suicide note that just suddenly appears no, on the bed that. with a what? A murder confession in it in which Ashley seems to admit to the murder of her father and her stepfather. Oh, convenient for Stacy. Uh-huh. Exactly. So Brie and is not like, at all suspicious. Yeah. Brie is like, what the fuck is this? All right. So Brie's like reading the note. It apparently, by the way, it's not even handwritten. It's typed. And <laughs> it's, it's, Ashley saying how she how she feels really bad. This is why she's taking her life because she just it feels so guilty for killing her father and her stepfather. Stacy comes in, sees Bree with the note, immediately takes it from Bree, and the paramedics arrive right then and there. And she hands the note directly to the paramedics. Look, she look, she obviously killed herself. Here's the note. No need, no need to kind of even help her. She's obviously trying to kill herself. The paramedics get there and they're still a pulse. Ashley is still alive. So okay. they rush her to the hospital. They, I bet they pump her stomach, do all of that. Tests were conducted. It is revealed that she has a very high amount of painkillers in her system, like Aww. super high, right? Which is probably what was grounded up and in the drinks and what she was ingesting, because I really think Stacy wasn't going to be dumb enough to give her daughter antifreeze, right? I was hoping that she was, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. As a matter of fact, the the test came back and um, there was a they. They described it as a cornucopia of drugs in her system. A cornucopia. A cornucopia. They also okay. said, had they not gotten there, she was literally 15 minutes away from death. Wow. Yeah. Like she was in very bad shape. When Ashley finally woke up, she was questioned by police about the murders and obviously the note. And she was adamant from the time she woke up. She has no idea what they were talking about. She has no idea about the note. She didn't even really have any recollection of that night, except for remembering that her mom was pushing her to drink the drink and the straw in the back of her throat and all of that stuff. So that same day at the hospital, Stacy is arrested and charged with the murder of David Castor and the attempted murder of her daughter. Spinelli is like, we finally have enough evidence. Like, this seals the deal. On December 20th, uh, 2007, Castor is indicted on one count each of second-degree murder and second-degree attempted murder, and also charged with plot to present a forged will. On September 25th, 2008, the judge rules that the death of Michael Wallace can be submitted as evidence. Good. Now, Stacy hires Chuck Keller as her defense attorney, and he would just follow the narrative of it was really Ashley who killed Stacy's husband because Ashley is just a very jealous person. That's kind of the story he was going for. The prosecuting DA, William Fitzpatrick, said that this case was like a forensic analysis dream, right? (laughs) They had fingerprints. They had computer evidence. They even had forensic linguistic analysis of the typed notes. Like all of the compelling evidence against Stacy was just massive, right? Yeah. And he believed that she attempted to kill her daughter in order to frame her daughter with the suicide note, but like did not count on her living. Right. So remember, she was trying to tell Brie, oh, no, she looks fine. Like she looks okay. And Brie's like, "Uh, no, No. she doesn't look fine. Yeah. 
So the trial started in January of 2009 and lasted about four weeks. The prosecution presented a ton of evidence, the antifreeze poisoning, right? Um, Mm -hmm. All the evidence of the calcium, it's called calcium oxalate crystals that were found in both Wallace's body and in Castor's body, right? Motive for this, they felt from the get-go was just money, that Stacy was just after money, whether it be life support or in David's case, the money left in his will. Because remember, he had a pretty successful air conditioning company, right? Yeah. And so that was left to her in the will as well, right? They searched Stacy's computer and they found, surprise, surprise, that it had several drafts of the suicide note that Ashley was accused of writing. <laughs> Now, they were able to pick up the timestamps on those drafts and each Uh of the timestamps that when they matched it to kind of Ashley's schedule, Ashley would have been in school. There's no way that she would have been at her mom's house using the computer to type up this so-called suicide confession, right? She's so dumb. Ashley actually took the stand and testified against her mother as well. Good for And just talked about how, yeah, I didn't write that note, know those timestamps. I would have been at school, testified against her mom with like, you know, the drinks and all of that stuff. Prosecutors also talked about typing sounds that they were able to pick up as another piece of evidence against Stacy. So it was during one of their wiretap recordings that Stacy is talking to a friend and you can mm-hmm. hear typing sounds in the background. And each of the typing sounds that they picked up matched the timestamp of the drafts from the suicide note. Wow. So they were ever, they were able to put that together to prove that because, you know, prosecution could have said it was somebody else that typed that up, but they were yeah. able to match up timestamps and phone You're calls. Like, okay, you you hear her click clacking away in the background. Yeah, exactly. Oh, look at this timestamp on this document here. That's what she was tapping away at. Exactly. They also brought up the fact that Stacy didn't want to call 911 right away when Ashley got sick, mm-hmm. right? That according to Bree, Stacy said that Ashley looked okay. So the jury is hearing all of this, right? Right. They also presented evidence that the note in the note, the writer of the note referred to antifreeze as anti-free. And Stacy had always called it that during several recorded interviews and phone conversations. Oh, they so her, her own stupidity got her. her. Uh huh. They have her like referring to it as anti-free, 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 and even in the note, she spells it out anti-free. Because she's too dumb to know the difference. Exactly. I love it. Yep. They also noted to the jury that the suicide note was less about Ashley's inability to go on with life because of her guilt and more about Ashley trying to convince whoever the reader of the note was that Mm -hmm. her mother did not kill her father and stepfather. Usually when someone's going to take their life because they have guilt, I'm sure in their note, that's what they're expressing. Like, I'm really sorry. No, no, don't look at my mom. Please don't don't look look at my mom. Whatever you do, my mom is not guilty. Please know my mom is not guilty. Um, While the defense stuck to, you know, their story that Ashley was killing her father or killed her father and stepfather, um, they were trying, basically what... Their whole premise was they're just trying to create reasonable doubt. So they tried to poke holes in Ashley's story. They tried to convince the jury that she could have been capable of murder at 11 years old. And when, you know, when they have to bring up a motive, they said her motive at 11 years old for killing her father probably would have been the fact that he showed more favoritism to Bree, the younger sister, and that Ashley was just a really jealous person. And then that also extended to her stepfather for taking away um, her mother and for the bad relationship that she had had like the weakest argument oh my gosh i don't even know how this defense attorney i bet like he was just going through the motions just to get paid at this point because i'm sure he was like yeah no way um the defense even told the jury that ashley's own grandmother stacy's mom thought she was guilty which unfortunately she did like stacy's mom does not have it going on Huh? You like that phrase? Uh, I've been waiting for it. I (laughs) knew. (laughs) We've been doing this for a year. (laughs) And I knew. (laughs) So Stacy's mom 
as a matter of fact, is whack. Okay. <laughs> because Stacy's mom uh, did like up until the very end feel like her daughter was completely innocent, that there was no way her daughters could do this. And she was totally convinced by her daughter that it was her granddaughter that committed these murders, which is very unfortunate, especially for so Ashley. Sad. Yeah. So on February 5th, 2009, after four days of deliberation, Stacy Castor was found guilty of second degree murder in the poisoning of David and second degree attempted murder of Ashley. Stacy kept her eyes closed as the verdicts were read and basically just showed zero emotion. Open your eyes and face what you did. And unfortunately, this is going to piss you off. She never does. On March 5th, 2009, the DA asked to impose, impose, oh, hello, I'm from North Dakota. Actually, that's (laughs) British. (laughs) I don't know what that was. I don't know either. Uh, The DA asked to impose the maximum consecutive sentences for the crime. Mm -hmm. Um, And the DA said she is cold, calculating, and without any emotion, um, feels bad for what she has done. David's son asked the judge to severely punish Stacy for her crimes, stating, Your Honor, she is a monster and a threat to society. Mm-hmm. So everyone's like, just throw the book at her. Yeah. The presiding judge, Judge Fahey, sentenced her to a maximum of 25 years to life for the murder of David Castor and another 25 for the attempted murder of her daughter and another year and a half for the will forgery. So this was to be served consecutively, okay? Oh, good. I like that. Yeah. So the judge also read during the sentencing an impact state. Impact. See that? I'm now from Texas. You got Texas. a lot going on. I'm hopping around. I'm going around the world. Jets uh, that are here. <laughs> the impact statement from Ashley uh, was, and I quote, and this is actually really sad. I never knew what hate was until now. Even though I do hate her, I still love her at the same time. That bothers me. It's so confusing. How can you hate someone and love them at the same time? I just wish that she would say sorry for everything she did, including all the lies. As horrible as it makes me feel, this is goodbye, Mom. As hard as you tried, I survived and I will survive because now I'm surrounded by people that love me. I am going to do good things in this world, despite making me, in every sense of the word, an orphan. Oh, that is really sad. Isn't that sad? And I can't imagine being in the place, like, where she is, where, like, this is my mother. Mm-hmm. That, like, I'm supposed to love her. I We're supposed. And that was the one that she was closest with growing up. I know. And I know. all of a sudden, it's like her mom just didn't even care. Um, yeah. This, the daughter that she was the closest with, she just didn't sold care. Her, sold her for a few beans to try yeah. and get herself out of a mess she dug for herself because she's dumb. Yeah, it's it's so sad, so sad. It is really sad. So Castor was sent to the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in Bedford Hills, New York. Her earliest possible release was set for June 15th, 2055, um, when she was going to be 88. Stacy actually died in prison of natural causes in 2016. She was only, yeah, she was only 48 years old. Huh. So that's kind of ironic right there. Interesting. Right? That she she died so young. Um, Stacy never took responsibility for the murders. She maintained not. her innocence to the end. She never tried once to apologize to her daughters. And Why would she apologize? She didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. No, no. Not according to her. And her daughters never spoke to her again. After the sentencing, nor did Stacy ever try to contact her daughters after she was sent to prison. Yeah, it's because she knows she fucked up, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm honestly proud of the daughters for maintaining their strength and not 
reaching out to their mom. Like, yeah, I probably sound like the biggest bitch that I'm like, hell yeah, yeah. cut off yeah. your mom. But, yeah. you know, cut off whoever you need to cut off to be your best self. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if for those of you who are interested in this case, 2020 did an interview with Ashley after the case was over. Um, and I'm not sure if it was also after, let me look, um, if it was after her mom's death in prison. Oh no, this was prior. So she did an interview with ABC news for 2020 in 2009. So it was after her mom's sentencing. So this was prior to her mom passing away. Um, but it's a really interesting interview. They go through the whole case as well. I didn't watch it prior to this, but uh, I just saw like little snippets of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're interested in that, um, you can look that up online. But that is the story of Stacy Castor. So you're welcome for that love nugget. Yeah, um, you're getting predictable. <laughs> These are just so interesting to me because I want to know how did Stacy think she would get away with that twice? Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. There I mean, there has to be a part of her that legitimately thought that she was home clear with all of this. Yeah. But I don't know. Just some people greed is a crazy thing. It is a crazy thing. It does thing. things. Man, okay. Well, I I guess thank you for that. Hey, you're welcome. Just I'm doing my part to spread love and positivity in this world. I I guess I'll see you next week. I will see you next week. And we'll see all of you next week. It's not getting bad yet. It's me next week. It's okay to tune in. (laughs) If you want like a lot of details and (laughs) specifics on cases, I guess come back. Criminal code. (laughs) But if you want betrayal and sadness and torture. Oh my god, yeah. Oh man. All right. I think I think we get a good spectrum. We do. Of, we do. Yeah. It's it's a little bit for everyone. It's like we're a chartreuterie board. Is that what they're called? Chartreuterie, chartreuter. I think you're broken. Okay. What is it? How do you pronounce that? Charcuterie. What? Who would name it that? It's a French word. Okay, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I think they're ready for you to go. Add it to the list. Save Goodbye. yourselves. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Uh, good night. <laughs> or good day. Good day. Good day. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> You know, by the way, I've never had Southern Comfort. I've seen it before. I've never tried it before. I'm like, is it comforting? I don't know. Anyways. I, I think Southern Comfort is one of those like. Is it a rum or a, uh, a whiskey? A bourbon. Okay. I don't even know. I know it's dark and it's in a plastic bottle and it's on the bottom shelf. You know what? Have you? Whiskey to me always smells like banana bread. But it does not taste like banana bread. So PSA to anyone out there who's never had whiskey before. What banana bread are you making? I swear that whiskey, when you smell it, any, and it doesn't matter the brand, it smells like banana bread. No. (laughs) And so it always smells good to me. And so I always go, oh, I'll try it. And then, nope, that's not banana bread. That's like. That's awful. It's so the opposite of banana bread. I'm really concerned about like the bananas you're using. There are a lot of things that we need to talk about. The The yeast, the banana. (laughs) Come, you know, not to make this connection. However, a lot of alcohol smells yeasty also. Do you ever smell that? You know that there's yeast in alcohol like well in beer beer, right but see beer doesn't smell yeasty to me just like hard alcohol except for vodka 
vodka smells like Barbies. Okay, moving on. I think we need to have a whole separate episode about this. <laughs> do not tell me that when you smell vodka, you do not think about Barbies. No. Okay. Maybe I need to see somebody. <laughs> Maybe I have some horrible trauma, vodka, Barbies. Oh, okay. I'm going to move on to Stacey. Yes, please. <laughs> Kat and I are so grateful for all of our listeners and we love hearing from you guys. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Interest Podcast and let us know your thoughts on this week's case. We want to cover the things that you guys want to hear, so please email us your case suggestions at alternativeinterestpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for listening and sharing us with your friends. Be good to each other and we'll see you next week.